And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week at the Institute of Politics with Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the new U.S. ambassador to the United Nations whose personal journey from her childhood in the segregated South and small-town Louisiana to her distinguished 35-year career in the Foreign Service is a remarkable story. We talked about that and the many urgent issues on her plate today. Here's that conversation. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, it's, it's great to be with you. Welcome to the Institute of Politics and welcome to the Axe Files. Well, thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. I feel, I, I mean, it's such an honor for me. Well, and likewise, uh, you know, um, I, I, there's so much to talk about, but I want to start with your own story. It's a long way from Baker, Louisiana, to <laughs> the uh, rarefied air of the United Nations. And I, I, tell me a little bit about your, your family and growing up in Baker during a, a very fraught time there in the 50s and 60s when the civil rights movement was uh, really uh, uh, growing. You know, uh, Baker is a small rural town uh, just outside of Baton Rouge. So uh, when I meet people and they ask me where I'm from, I usually will say Baton Rouge unless they uh, know Louisiana. And uh, But we lived... Uh, kind of isolated, segregated environment. I have to say that in my early years as a little kid running around uh, our little rural town, I didn't understand or see or feel racism because I was in a community that embraced me. I was going to a segregated school where the teachers lived in our community and the teachers embraced us. Uh, my friends were in the community with me. Uh, so it was comfortable, uh, to, uh, to, to be honest, comfortable in the sense that I didn't get that daily uh, worry about being um, confronted with racism. But that said, my parents were living every day with the challenges of, of racism. Uh, my mother was a maid in the early years working uh, for uh, white families, crosses were being burned in our communities on, on the weekend. Got to give us the message to stay yeah. in our place. Uh, but again, as a little kid, you don't see the threat of all of that. I only started to understand the threat as I started to move outside of our community. And you're a, you're a descendant of uh, uh, your great, I guess your great, great grandmother was yeah. uh, the, the daughter of a enslaved person and uh and your folks I, I don't think uh got much formal education uh no i i actually my grandmother great grandmother lived in the house with with us it was my father's grandmother mary uh and she was born in 1865 and she died in 1965 uh at 100 years old and hmm. my biggest regret in life is that i didn't have the wherewithal to ask her questions about her life I just mm -hmm. never thought about it. And every day I, I regret that I didn't talk to her more about how she started and, and where she came from. Uh, my father uh, was taken out of school when he was in third grade uh, to work on uh, 
his family's, uh, to work for his family. They didn't have a farm, but they had gardens and uh, his, his father passed away. So he was the oldest son and he had to, to help out. And I didn't realize until I was in probably high school that he couldn't read uh, because he was so smart and he was so intelligent and uh, he kept it from us. My mother could read. She went to school till uh, eighth grade in the town that she grew up in, a black school uh, uh, stopped at eighth grade. So if you wanted to go beyond eighth grade, you had to move away. And so she stopped at eighth grade. She did. And I'm very proud of her for this. Uh, she since passed away, but she went back to high school and graduated in 1989 from the segregated high school that I never had an opportunity to go to. It was the white school when I graduated in 1970. In 1989, it was integrated and my mother graduated uh, with the 1989 graduating class. And, um, you know, I, I wonder, given that history, um, about a couple of things. One is um, how you reacted yesterday when we saw the results of this trial in Minneapolis. And you must have been watching it attentively, as we all were. Uh, what were what were your feelings about it when that verdict came in? Well, first of all, it was very emotional. And I was sitting in a room by myself and realized I couldn't watch it alone. And so I went into uh, a room with uh, two other people and I was holding my breath because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know whether justice would be served. And that's the experience that so many African-Americans uh, experience, that we don't know whether justice will be served for us. And as the mother of a son, um, George Floyd could have been my son. Any of these young uh, black men uh, who were killed so violently could have been my son. And every single time I watched him being choked to death, I thought that could have been my own baby. Uh, and I know that every single black parent felt the same way. That, that could have been our son, it could have been our brother, it could have been uh, our father, uh, it could have been someone connected to us. So we all felt somewhat connected uh, to that. And so after the verdict was announced, I breathed a sigh of relief, but it's a, it was a brief sigh of relief because this is just the beginning. Of, of, of justice being uh, brought for so many uh, young uh, men who have experienced this. And I remember thinking, of course, he was vilified. And I was talking to a friend who was vilifying him in front of me. And I said, so if he passed a big $20 bill, is that a death sentence? You can't vilify people. Uh, for making mistakes in life and then get a death sentence for it. Uh, so I, I do think uh, the decision that the jury made uh, was the right decision, and it gives relief to all of us who watch. You created a bit of a stir a couple of weeks ago by speaking very openly and honestly about the legacy of race right back to the founding of the Republic. Uh, you said, I've seen for myself how the original sin of slavery weaved white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. 
But I also share these stories to offer up an insight, a simple truth I've learned over the years. Racism is not the problem of the person who experiences it, which is a really interesting observation. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo jumped on you for this, said it was reprehensible uh, that you were running down the country and so on. What was your reaction to his comments? Uh, I actually didn't hear his comments, but someone did tell me uh, what he said. And all anyone has to do is turn on CNN. I'm not exposing some government secret about racism in America. It is a fact. It is something we live every single day. And if we can't acknowledge it, who else should acknowledge it? We have a constitution that says a black man is only three-fifths of a person. Uh, We have a constitution that was written by slave owners. Now, I will give them credit that that document has survived in ways that have brought freedoms and uh, opportunity for all of us. And our founding fathers need to be commended for that, but they also need to be called out for where they had shortcomings. And there were shortcomings that were uh, there. I can say without a doubt that I am the proudest American that anyone will ever see at the United Nations, because not only am I proud of my country, I acknowledge my country's weaknesses, and I am an example of what can be achieved in spite of those weaknesses. And I think that's a very powerful statement uh, for America on the world stage. So how, how did you, how did this uh, passion of yours begin? I understand there was some sort of outpost in Baker for the, was it the Peace Corps or mm-hmm. that first got you thinking, hey, maybe this is something I want to do? You know, that's interesting because over many years I was asked how I uh, became interested in uh, foreign affairs. And it was only later in life that I really look back and recall my experience with uh, the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps came to my community in the mid-60s, just as uh, Peace Corps was beginning. And they were training to go to Somalia and Swaziland. And there were young kind of white hippies. One of them eventually would end up being my boss in the foreign (laughs) service. It's it's a small world. Uh, So these hippies and a couple of uh, young African-Americans and then Africans from Swaziland and Somalia in this little segregated community where we had a a old HBCU that had closed down. And they open up so many doors of our minds. Uh, I had never even heard uh, anything about Africa. Whatever we heard about Africa was Tarzan. We hadn't experienced the real Africa. We hadn't experienced the real people of Africa. And Peace Corps brought that to, to our community. And in addition to bringing that to our community, they challenged the order of the day. They insisted that they be allowed to go to the local washeteria. And I know many of your students don't know what a washeteria is, uh, but most people use those. They insisted that they be allowed with their African teachers and African-Americans to use the local washeteria that had a for whites only sign on the front door. Uh, They insisted on going into restaurants. And so they opened doors for us that we ourselves never thought uh, could be open. And uh, I have always been thankful for that experience. You went to LSU, not a historically black uh, college. Um, That must have been 
challenging at that time in history? Uh, 1970, and it was. Uh, and I had no clue what I was uh, going to face there. Uh, but from uh, day one, when I moved into uh, my dormitory, uh, my roommate was black, and we were two black girls on a, a floor with all white girls. And every single hall in our dormitory only had two black girls on each hallway. Um, and we could never room with anyone else. And even my second year, I ended up rooming alone because there was not another black girl to, uh, to room with me. Uh, I've talked about the fact that David Duke was on campus at that time preaching same hatred that he's preaching today, the same white supremacy that has brought us to the place we are today. Uh, there, he only had the platform of the free speech alley that was outside the union. Uh, today, he has a world platform through uh, social media and through internet. You had this notion that you were going to, you, you went off to public administration school at the University of Wisconsin. You had this notion that you might go to law school uh, and then you took a, a, a different path. Why? Uh, because the path was put in front of me. Uh, so I had not intended to go to, uh, uh, to graduate school, uh, but I didn't know how I was going to get to law school. I knew I needed money and I was going to work and I was trying to figure out how I was going to do it. And this was put in front of me as an opportunity and I took advantage of it. And I always say to young people, don't stare an opportunity in the face because you're looking for another opportunity. When you say this, explain what you mean was put in front of you as an opportunity. So I, I had a professor uh, at LSU who had gone to the University of Wisconsin, and she asked what I planned to do. And I told her, I, I plan to go to law school, not quite sure how I'm going to do it. I'm going to work a couple of years and see if I can save some money, uh, get a scholarship, uh, and she said, well, the University of Wisconsin has this amazing one-year master's degree program. And there's a scholarship uh, mm. that I think you would qualify for. So she helped me apply for this scholarship. And I had no clue I was going to get accepted. Uh, I just took advantage of it because it was put in front of me. And I got accepted into the University of Wisconsin and the rest is history. I, uh, and I'm so happy I walked through that door. Yeah, different world up there than LSU. And, uh... Oh, yeah. But I will tell you something, though. The only, like, the first time ever in my life, and I told this to my friends at Wisconsin, that the N-word was ever thrown at me was in Madison, Wisconsin. Really? It, it never happened in Louisiana. Huh. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting. Racism uh, does not have boundaries. No, um, no. You decided to pursue a doctoral degree. Somewhere in there, you took a year's trip to do research in Liberia, yes. which, is, of course, is a country that was formed by freed enslaved people from America uh, in 1820. What, uh, what impact did that have on you? You talked earlier about what just learning about Africa did for you. What did it mean for you to go to Liberia? Well, the first thing, I, I still remember the Pan Am flight flying over the coast of Liberia as we were about to land and the emotions that I felt as an African-American going uh, back to 
where I knew I had ancestors somewhere. I didn't know from where, but I knew they came from that continent. So I felt very emotional. And then once landing there and starting to live there, uh, not being a minority for the first time in my life because everybody was black. Uh, so I felt the emotions of being included uh, in, in the country and looking like uh, everyone else. Um, so it did have a, a major impact on, on, on my life. You joined the Foreign Service and you spent, what, 12 years in various postings in Africa. Tell me about the, the, the decision to join the Foreign Service. I know somewhere along the, the way you acquired a husband out of the deal uh, who, who was also in the Foreign Service. But tell me about that decision in those 12 formative years. Well, I intended to go into academics. So uh, I, after I concluded my research uh, in Liberia, I went back to Wisconsin to write my dissertation. And like many uh, ABD uh, um, PhD students, I kind of hit a law. Like I wrote three chapters and it just, I just froze. So my professor, a wonderful man by the name of Crawford Young, suggested I go off and teach for a couple of years or, or, or a year and then come back and finish the dissertation. And I took his advice and went off to teach at Bucknell University and realized that that was not my passion at the time. I, I, I've changed since, but it was not my passion. And I had taken the Foreign Service exam just without a commitment to going into the Foreign Service. And I passed the exam. I, I, I passed the oral exam in Chicago. I uh, came to the federal building there for my oral. And uh, so then I thought, well, maybe let me look into this. And I was in the process of getting married to someone who was in the Foreign Service, and it made a lot of sense to me. And uh, here I am. 35 years in the, yeah. in the, in the Foreign Service in various capacities, uh, including postings as ambassador. You, you were the ambassador to Kenya, I believe. No, in, Li not, Liberia. No, to, and, and then, well, where, where I were served you? in Kenya. Oh, I in, served in okay, Kenya. you served in Kenya. So in 1994, you made a trip to Rwanda that was really meaningful to you and really underscored the need for diversity in the Foreign Service. Tell me about what happened. You know, <laughs> And these things that change your life. Uh, I went to Rwanda uh, to do an assessment of Burundi refugees and the programs that we were supporting for those refugees. And a genocide happened uh, mm -hmm. as while I'm there. And uh, I kind of got caught in the crossfire in the sense that as uh, these genocidaires were looking for the people they wanted to kill, and they started out with a list of people they wanted to kill. And one of those people happened to be the acting prime minister, who was a Hutu, who lived next door to the deputy chief of mission, our deputy ambassador, where I was staying. And when they went to her house, they didn't find her. And they assumed that she'd come next door because we had actually tried to help her cross the wall into our residence thinking it would save her life. Uh, we failed at helping her cross the wall. I'll never uh, uh, understand. And I think 
because she didn't cross the wall, I'm here to talk about it. Um, but when they didn't find her, they came into our residence looking for her. And they stormed into the residence and they looked at me. And as soon as they looked at me, I knew they saw her. I immediately knew. And, you know, I kind of had this holy crap moment of uh, they think I'm her. So I took out my passport and I started yelling in French, I'm not the person you're looking for. I'm an American. I live in Kenya and I'm kind of attacking this guy with my passport. Um, I live to tell the story, as I said, there's much more to it. Uh, but when I came out of it, I came out of it with kind of two things. One, they didn't know that I was an American diplomat because they're not used to seeing a black diplomat. And that's not good. And secondly, that sometimes, and I always talk about the importance of kindness. So this person who was holding the gun on me, I talked to him. I asked him his name, and unfortunately, I've forgotten his name. But I also wanted him to know my name, because I thought he was going to kill me. And I thought, you know, if he kills me, he needs to know who he killed. I don't want him to ever forget my name. And so I told him my name uh, and kind of had a conversation with him. They would eventually leave. And as I said, the story is mm -hmm. much longer. Yeah. But I've never forgotten the impact that it had. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You uh, ultimately uh, became the chief of the Foreign Service, and you were a force for promoting uh, diversity. But by the way, we should we could talk about the failures of the U.S. in Rwanda, which were yeah. legion, and I'm sure also taught you uh, some lessons. But we got limited time, um, and you were a champion for diversity in the Foreign uh, Service, and for basically for the rights of, of, of minorities and, and women around the world, women yes. uh, being uh, particularly abused in many places in the world. It, it leads me to um, a question about um, current policy in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, we are leaving Afghanistan uh, by September 11th. Uh, that is the decision of the president. Um, there is a lot of concern about what happens if the Taliban uh, come back and are resurgent and reimpose the really, really uh, oppressive uh, policies toward women uh, that existed before uh, the Taliban were overthrown with the help of the American government. Um, what, what do you say to folks who are concerned about that as someone who's been a lifelong champion of women's rights. Uh, and you may not know this, it's rarely shown in my uh, bio, but I actually worked in Pakistan for three years, focused on working with Afghan refugees and in the late 90s and traveled regularly uh, to Afghanistan with a primary goal of promoting uh, the rights of women and girls. Uh, so what I say to those women and girls right now and to all Afghan people, we have so many tools in our toolkit 
the military is just one component. We will continue to engage both politically and diplomatically with Afghanistan, with the government of Afghanistan and with the people of Afghanistan. And we will continue to press and push for women's rights and for the rights of, uh, of girls and for human rights in, uh, in Afghanistan. Our military went into Afghanistan 20 years ago to ensure that Afghanistan did not continue to be a safe haven. We accomplished that goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have continued to build opportunities in that country through our diplomatic and our political tools. We will continue to. Yeah, you know, Ambassador, the, the that is all true. Everything you said is true. But, and, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on this, and I'm sure you've heard personally, there are a lot of women there who feel abandoned. They're very frightened about what is going to happen next. You must have concerns about that. You know, I'm always uh, concerned about the impact of violence and policies against women globally. Uh, I raise this issue in the Security Council on uh, a regular basis. We're looking at the situation, for example, in Ethiopia, yes. where rape is being used as a, as a tool of war. I saw the impact of Liberian women, including electing a woman as president, and we have supported those efforts. And we will continue to support Afghan women as they fight for, the, for their rights. And again, I know that it will always be an uphill battle because women's rights are always compromised uh, in situations of conflict. But they should know that we will be standing with them. The other thing that's percolating right now is the issue of refugee policy and um and a question as to whether the president has gone back on a commitment he made to lift the cap of 15,000, very, very low cap that President Trump put on uh, the allowable number of refugees admitted to the country. President Biden said by uh, before October that there would be 62,500 refugees allowed in, and he wanted to double that in the next uh, fiscal year. But the other day, uh, the decision came down that the cap was going to remain for now because of my, uh, immigration issues at the border. Why should people not, there's a lot of anger about it, should people not feel uh, a bit of a betrayal on this? Absolutely not. I think the president's commitment to refugees and humanitarian programs is it's very, very clear. And we see this as a first step. Uh, in opening up uh, the refugee processing program, but we see those numbers uh, increasing, and the president has made that uh, clear in his response to uh, uh, to questions uh, about this. Uh, I have worked on refugee programs that rarely shows up in my career uh, file, uh, but more than 15 years, I worked on refugee programs, starting with resettlement programs. And it takes an extraordinarily well-oiled infrastructure to bring refugees in, to support them once they arrive, and help them integrate in the United States. That was destroyed during uh, the Trump uh, administration over the past four years. We're rebuilding that infrastructure, and I know that we will continue to see the president's uh, honored the commitment that he's yeah. made. 
And I don't mean to run you through your the mm-hmm. you know through talking points. That's not useful for either of us. But these are mine. Uh, <laughs> but he um, no, I, I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting <laughs> otherwise. But you know, there was a piece this morning in the Times uh, that said the Secretary of State went in and, and tried to make the case for the to the president to to raise the cap, and he had gone up to the hill and said that that would happen. Uh, it just it feels like something went off the rails a little bit here. Is that not right? No, I don't think that's right. I I think we're looking at what we can do at this point in time, mm-hmm. but the president is clear the numbers are, yeah. are going to increase. So I, I yeah. don't think that's right. I, I think people need to watch what the president does over the coming weeks and months. Yeah. Maybe the best thing here is to say the situation was different than what we thought we were going to walk into. And, uh, and, and you know, the, the intent is the same. And we want to do it as soon as is humanly possible, probably is the, the most honest. Not from, I'm not suggesting you're not yeah. being honest, but I just from the beginning, I can't help but going back to my old life, you know, and kibitzing about uh, message. Yes. You've got uh, a big couple of days coming up uh, right now. Uh, the president is uh, holding a virtual climate summit with uh, leaders from all over the world to try and get uh, accelerate heading into the next big climate meeting in Glasgow uh, later this year, accelerate what was done in Paris. You've rejoined the Paris uh, Accord. Tell me what you hope is going to be accomplished in these two days. Thank you for that question, because I'm actually on my way to uh, to Washington uh, tonight, where I will be uh, uh, participating and moderating a panel with uh, Secretary Austin on the security uh, implications of of climate change and what the president hopes to achieve uh, over the next two days is to, I think, reaffirm our commitment uh, to climate and really um, challenge other countries to reaffirm their commitments and make those commitments even more ambitious than we have uh, had in the past. Uh, we are losing time. We know that climate impacts all of us, all over the world. And here at the United Nations, this is an issue that I will be working on and addressing over the coming months leading up to the Glasgow uh, conference because it's it's a global issue. And I need to work with uh, all of the members of the Security Council to get them to uh, uh, really firm up and recommit to dealing with what uh, we all will have to face if we don't uh, address climate change today. I spoke yesterday to uh, the climate minister of, uh, of of another country, and he asked me. Um, we have, he said, we we have no question about President Biden's commitment, but we have questions about America's ability to stick to President Biden's commitments because. President Obama made commitments, then there was a change of administration and there was a backsliding uh, on all of this and the withdrawal from the Paris uh, Accord. How do you regain trust? And I think this is a question not just about Mm -hmm. climate, but about a lot of issues that you personally are going to be dealing with as you talk to your colleagues from around the world. It's a challenge to regain trust, but I think everything that we have done in the 100 days of, of uh, the Biden administration shows the world that we're back and that we're committed. 
And I have to say here in New York, I've been warmly embraced. I've been embraced by our adversaries. I've been embraced by uh, our allies because the U.S. voice is an important uh, voice. We did, over the past four years, gave the world a reason to question our commitments. Uh, but we're back and we're re, uh, really working to reaffirm that. And I think the important thing is uh, that we really have to uh, firm up those commitments. And I would say even on the climate change, where the government stepped back, the private sector and state governments continue to move forward. So mm -hmm. uh, people still saw that America had not turned its back completely on on climate change or on the world. Yeah, it's been reported that the president's going to actually increase our goal by 2030 uh, to uh, uh, significantly from 30 percent under 2005 levels of emissions to 50 percent, cutting them that much. Um, the question the guy was asking me who I spoke with was, what happens if uh, a Republican administration comes in and what assurance is that, uh, what assurance does the world have that uh, the U.S. will stay on that path? You know, I, I, I think that's a good question. And I think that, again, they have to look at what happened during the past four years where our private sector didn't turn back the clock and our state governments didn't turn back. And American people broadly did turn, turn it back. Uh, and so I think we are, it's incumbent upon us to continue to build on what we're doing during this four years so that it, it's harder for a different administration uh, to, uh, to turn things around as quickly as, as Trump. That caught all of us by surprise. And so I think we will do everything possible to make it harder to do that next time around. You know, the other thing that comes up is China, and uh, they're the biggest emitter emitter in the mm -hmm. world, almost twice as 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 much as we admit, emit uh, at this point. They have over a thousand coal mines, and they're building more. A real emphasis on their economic development. How do you? What leverage do you have? I mean, are the Chinese even going to participate in this uh, summit? They did announce that they were going to participate. And we actually see this as an area where we can find some synergies with the, with the Chinese and some cooperation with them on climate change. They know the impact of climate change. If you've ever gone to Beijing on those days when you can barely see the air in front of you, they know that this is impacting them and they know that they have to address uh, the issues of climate change if their country is to continue to grow and, and survive. And that's one of the areas where I have engaged with the Chinese in New York. Uh, Secretary uh, or Special Envoy Kerry uh, was mm -hmm. in China, and uh, he, it's through his efforts that he has brought the Chinese on, on, on board. Uh, we will continue to work with them to get them to make commitments uh, that will help us deal with this. They did uh, acknowledge in what was uh, some critics said was kind of an anodyne statement, but they did acknowledge that this was a crisis, and that's an important, mm -hmm. important. word. The question is, uh, you know, they are, whether, they're, uh, whether they're intent on delaying action 
as they pursue their economic plans between now and 2030 and whether it'll be too late uh, for them to get serious about these goals if, if, if the global climate targets are going to be met. And that's why we have to ramp up our efforts. That's why this conference that we're having over the next two days is so important as a first step of getting to the next uh, conference in uh, later this year uh, to continue to keep the pressure on China as well as other countries to uh, honor their commitments and up their ambitions and to hold them accountable for what they're doing on, on the environment. Uh, we can't delay this. Presumably to signal that we've upped our ambitions as well. Yes, yes. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You're going to do a a session with Secretary Austin yes. on the national secure on the security, not national, but the security elements of uh, climate. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, we have a number of countries. Uh, the Kenyan Defense Minister is uh, is participating, for example, and I know her quite well. Uh, we have seen the impact of climate on security. You just have to look at what's happening, for example, in uh, in uh, the Sahel. Uh, where the uh, social and economic impact of climate has had an impact on insecurity in this region. Uh, it's impacting migration uh, flows uh, in Africa as well as uh, in other places uh, in the world. So the idea is to look at how the climate uh, is is impacting security and how we can start to address those issues. We will also have Avril Haines participating, looking at... National uh, Intelligence Director, yeah. Yes, looking at uh, how our intel can assess the impact of climate in certain areas of, uh, uh, of the world. I think this is going to be an important discussion, uh, and I think it will highlight for so many people but they don't connect. They don't connect climate always mm -hmm. to insecurity. And is the target America of your messages? No, the target is the world. We, we're going to have participants from uh, uh, several uh, other countries participating mm -hmm. uh, in this. And, and it, the target is it's, it's the globe. Before I let you go, I, wanna, I have to ask you about Russia. There are so many fraught... <laughs> fraught elements of our relationship uh, right now. The president expelled uh, some of their di diplomats. They expelled some of ours. They, uh, president uh, Putin has imprisoned uh, Alexei Navalny. He apparently is very ill and is not getting the attention he needs. There are Russian troops massed on the border of Ukraine. What options are there for America? And what are you doing? How are you dealing with this at the UN? President Biden said when he made the announcement and after his call to Putin, we want a stable and predictable relationship with Russia and that a stable and predictable relationship provides security for all of us and for everyone across the world. And so part of my job here in New York 
is to promote that stable and predictable relationship because I have almost, uh, as a member of the Security Council, uh, a member of the P5, I have regular engagements with my Russian counterpart. And we don't want to escalate what is happening now. The president made clear that we had no choice but to respond to Russian attacks on our electoral process. But we also want to look for those areas where we can have a relationship of uh, that, that is predictable for the rest of the world. And we will be working here in New York to try to enhance those areas where we, we can cooperate, uh, but we will not shy away uh, from letting uh, the Russians know if we have uh, some issues that uh, cause us uh, uh, problems with them. Yeah, I mean, if Navalny dies, if the Russians move on Ukraine, that's a big strategic challenge for us. It, it absolutely is. And it's something that we're watching very, very closely. And should that happen, I, I think we, again, are, will be put in a place where we have to have some tough discussions, additional tough discussions with the Russians on, uh, on the way forward, if there is one. Tell me about your view of the United Nations as an institution. It has taken a lot of incoming. There, is, there are situations like the one in Ukraine where the question is, how much leverage does the UN actually have in, 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 in averting aggression between countries? Make the case for the institution and what needs to happen there to strengthen the institution. The United Nations is the only global institution that we have in the world dating back to World War II where we can address global issues. And while it has not always succeeded in addressing those issues the way we would like them to address those issues, it provides a forum where we can at least come together and try to find uh, solutions for dealing with these tough issues like what is happening in Ukraine or Burma or Yemen or, or Syria. And occasionally we actually hit the sweet spot where all of us come together and actually find a, a solution. It's tough work uh, because you're dealing with countries that have different interests and they bring their interests to the table and those interests are not always our interests. And we're constantly trying to work within the context of competing national uh, interest. But again, I think that every country, every member state of the United Nations see this organization as important in getting uh, issues and crises dealt with uh, in an acceptable way to uh, people in the world. And I can tell you that people want to hear our voices. When we make a statement on Burma, the people of Burma are listening. Uh, when we make a, a statement on Syria, as I did today, I know the people of Syria are listening and we give them strength by our, our, our support. The fact that we were able to sit in a, a global forum and express our support for what is happening. One of the controversies that you have confronted is the decision to rejoin the Human Rights Council, which... You, the U.S. withdrew from under the Trump administration because of the perception, not the perception, because of, you know, a persistent anti-Israeli focus of the council and 
the fact that a lot of human rights abusers were well represented on the council and the hypocrisy of that. And, and how do you respond to all of that? If we're not at the table, those human rights abusers are empowered at the table. And our power and our ability to push back is felt. And our being, uh, our decision to leave the council was felt by those people who looked to us for our voices, and particularly as it relates to Israel, because we were able to push back. And while we didn't succeed in getting every single attack on Israel stopped, we were able to decrease the uh, number of attacks. And that is going to be one of our highest priorities when we rejoin the Security Council. And I think we have some new opportunities. Israel has developed new relationships that came out of the Abraham Accord with countries in, uh, in the Middle East. It is my hope that we can use those new relationships to decrease the unfair targeting of, of Israel in the context of, uh, of the human rights uh, Council, as well as at the uh, United Nations. Do you think some of the criticism is, is fair? No. It's, uh, it, what we have seen is that the criticism is unfair. When there are, when Israel does things that uh, require criticism, we will criticize uh, Israel. But the way the Human Rights Council has addressed Israel, uh, there's a separate uh, chapter article seven that allows israel to be addressed at every single security council meeting that doesn't happen with any other country we all mm -hmm. have issues that we want to bring to the table about every country but israel is the only country where they're actually on the agenda all the time and that has to that has to stop we're not saying israel can't be criticized if they do something that uh, we disagree with but what we're saying is Israel can't be the only country that gets this kind of targeted, focused uh, criticism that no other country ever experiences on, on the Security Council. And our place will be there to defend Israel. There's so much to talk about in so little time. It's so great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining today. Good. Thank you very much. And again, I'm so honored to have this opportunity to uh, sit with you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.